Uh, we're going to talk this morning um, about money. Paul, the first slide was there a little minute ago. Um, it's a very, you, you'll notice I've got a really strong PowerPoint this morning. Um, and I thought long and hard about it, so this is, this is what we're getting. Um, uh, okay, when I say the word money, what's the first word or the first phrase that comes to your mind? What's your initial kind of reaction um, to that word? Have a think for five seconds, and then we're going to share it with the person next to you if you feel comfortable enough to do so. Or you could change it to share with the person next to you uh, if you don't feel comfortable. Uh, So five, four, three, two, one. Okay, with the person next to you, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word money? Some of you are saying more than a phrase. That's forbidden. Just a phrase or a word. Okay, I'd like to hear from some of you. Um, uh, If you think the person next to you had a very interesting one, put your hand up. Oh, good, you're all fascinating this morning. Um, Nige, what did the person next to you say? Okay, so security or lack of security. That's a big one for a lot of people. Anyone else? Jenny? Work, okay. Uh, Money is tied up to work, or work is tied up to money, or you only work because of the money? Uh, Nick? Mr. and Mrs. Did did Glenn say the same thing? Fascinating. So there you go. Oh, I see, that was Clive. Um, Right, who else? Okay, so the first thing that came to Luke's mind was communism. Oh, that's uh, Justin. <laughs> uh, it's enough to go around, but it's not in the right places. A misallocation of, of money. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that's good. Really strong. You can say your own ones as well. Sorry. <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone else? Yes. Chocolate coins. Did anyone else think chocolate coins? Was that the first thing that came to your mind? Was chocolate money? That's really good. I asked Melissa this question yesterday. I said, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? She thought about it for a moment and they said, complicated. Money is complicated, isn't it? And it's tied up with so many different things in our lives. For a lot of us, it's tied up in our enjoyment. Uh, It's tied up in holidays. For a lot of us, money is to do with uh, security, like was said, or the lack of. For a lot of uh, people in this room, just saying the word money will cause this kind of involuntary panic thing to start happening in your tummy. Um, Maybe just because you have a lot of fear around money, and maybe that fear is uh, misplaced, or maybe it's actually you're, you're in a lot of debt, or there's money pressures, or you're living paycheck to paycheck. The fact is we all have a different relationship with money, but my guess is that all of us have a slightly dysfunctional relationship with money at times. Is that fair to say? Has anyone in this room ever been, ever felt anxious about money? You put your hand up. If you've ever in your life felt anxious about money, okay, have a little look around. Oh, they've all gone down. Okay. Now you can feel a little bit better because everyone around you also put their hand up that actually we all have this kind of slightly it's complicated relationship um, with money. Um, I want to start this morning by looking at a guy who had an incredibly dysfunctional relationship with money. Um, And he's a man who pops up in Luke chapter 19. Um, It's not Jesus. Uh, So if you have a Bible or you have a phone with a Bible on it, um, turn to Luke 19. We're going to look at the story here. Um, Right, I don't know why you've frozen. Sorry. Uh, If we can have technical support for Paul. Uh, I don't actually have the scripture coming up on the screen. It's just a slide that says Luke 19 on it. So it's not massively helpful, uh, but we're in Luke 19. 
And we're going to look at a man who has a, a really, a really, a really bad relationship with money. And uh, his, the first couple of verses go like this. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Okay, so the first thing that happens is Jesus is walking through this town called Jericho, which is a fair way from uh, Jerusalem, but he's kind of in the trajectory of his ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem, uh, basically to redeem and save the world. Yeah, uh, so it's a good, good thing. Um, and on his way, he's coming through this little town, which is right near the Dead Sea, um, a bit of a desert place uh, called Jericho. Um, and in it, Uh, is a guy we're introduced to called Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus is introduced to us as a tax collector. Um, Now, most of you will know this, but uh, some won't. Tax collectors were a little bit different back then to what they are now. Uh, So in in one context, uh, they are people who uh, the government employs uh, to uh, take our money. Wait, which one was that? Uh, no, so, so nowadays tax collecting is actually quite a good thing, right? We need to pay taxes because we need roads and we need hospitals and we need police and we need ambulances. And most of us in general are quite grateful that we have the benefits that paying tax gives us. Is that fair to say? We don't love the, when the bill comes though, do we? Or when the, the little letter comes through to say, congratulations, you've underpaid. <laughs> it's not a fun letter. Um, uh, but when you've overpaid, how good is that? And that you just realize, oh, the government are just going to give me money for free. Uh, So good. But uh, people had a much stronger relationship with tax collectors back in this context. So in this context, the Jewish people who lived in the land of Israel were under occupation by Rome, right? And Rome, um, in return for oppressing and dictating and uh, ruling over the people, thought the next fair thing to do is also to take quite a lot of their money. So uh, they, would Im- they would get these people who were native to the land to be tax collectors for them. So they would find Jewish people and they would say, hey, I'll tell you what, you go and collect the taxes for us from the people in your town. We want X amount per person. But anything on top of that you collect, you get to keep. So let's say it's 100 quid per person per year or per month or something. But if you take 200, you get to keep the extra 100. And here's the thing. The army will back you up. So whatever you say, people have to give to you. Now, can you imagine the kind of context that opens up for extortion and for... um, uh, Is fraud the right word? I don't know. But for, for ripping people off basically. And tax collectors basically did that. They ripped people off so much. So they would go to people's houses, turn up at the door and demand payment and say, if you don't pay, the army of Rome are going to come and arrest you or take your house or whatever. So the pressure was on. And over time, what happened was tax collectors got very, very, very rich and very, very, very unpopular. Now, What we know about Zacchaeus is that he wasn't just a tax collector, but he'd kind of ascended the ranks of tax collector and was now a chief tax collector. So if tax collectors are baddies, chief tax collector is as bad as they get. And then it says, and he was rich, as if that needed to be said in this passage. But Luke felt the need to tell us he's not just a tax collector, he's good at it. 
He's not just going to rip you off a little. This guy rips you off a lot. Everyone he's come into contact with, he has basically burned. And do you know what? For Zacchaeus, that has the advantage of making him very rich, but it also comes with some disadvantages, doesn't it? Zacchaeus is universally hated. His love for money, his love for more, for getting more, has meant that he is in every other aspect of his life incredibly poor, right? His relationships have gone down the pan. His friends and family don't want to know him. No one wants to be Zacchaeus's friend because he's the guy who rips you off. And he's the guy who ripped the guy down the road from you off. He's the guy who rips everyone in our neighborhood off. And he's like representative of the people who are oppressing us. Do you get it? Of course you get it. Um, So basically, Zacchaeus's relationship with money is, I will give whatever to get a bit more rich. Um, Now, I've got a little uh, excuse here, which is I won't be able to very well direct what's going on with the notes because I've forgotten my notes. So sorry. Uh, So this might be a little bit more bumpy. uh, But I've got a couple of... um, Every now and then I'll need a little quote up, Paul, because I don't have it written in front of me. That's perfect. So, um, in fact, Zacchaeus's life is basically the epitome of this phrase from Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, where it talks about someone who lives for money. And what it says is, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Now, just spend a little moment, let's spend a little moment thinking about the truth of that phrase. If you love money, let's say your life is about getting more money. How many of you know there's never actually enough? There's never an amount where you get to and you think, hallelujah, I have enough money. Or if you're focusing on your wage and you can't wait for the next promotion or, uh, or the, the, the next pay rise. Uh, but, but all of us know, don't we, as soon as it comes, it feels really great for like a day. And then you think, I wonder when the next one's coming. I'm worth more than this. Do you know what I mean? And you, the, the, it never stops. There's actually been quite a lot of research on this. And uh, one piece of research suggested that everyone in the world, basically, well, at least everyone in our country, um, thinks that they would be happy with another 10%. Whatever you earn, you basically think, if I earn 10% more than I earn now, that would be enough and I'd be happy. But the irony is when you get to it, the logic is still there. You just want an extra 10 and an extra 10 and an extra 10. And actually, there's this sickness in us where money promises but it doesn't deliver. And Zacchaeus had found that. It promised to him, but it doesn't deliver. So then he just has to keep getting more and keep getting more and keep getting more. And he's ended up sacrificing all that's actually important in his life on the altar of getting more money. Um, A guy called Tim Keller uh, said this. Um, If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and will break our hearts. And there's that truth, isn't it? And that's so true about the issue of money, is it promises what it cannot deliver to us. Promises to make us happy. It promises to give us everything we want. Promises to give us the holidays that we want, or the meaning that we want, or the validation that we want, or the security that we want. Someone said security. And actually, if money is our security, it will never actually make us secure, will it? 
just like nothing else in life can except God. And so what eventually happens is it will let you down and break your heart. In the financial crisis, uh, kind of 10, 11 years ago, um, there were so many people who, when the banks went, um, they went into like this severe depression and loads of people committed suicide. Loads of people who worked in the city um, and in, in the states and the banks as well um, actually like thought, my gosh, if my financial portfolio is gone and my business is gone, my life is not worth living. Isn't that interesting? And they put so much hope in this thing that when it disappears, when it fails to deliver, it broke their whole world down. So it is. Uh, for Zacchaeus. He's rich, but only financially. And that's really come out, comes out in the next couple of verses. It says, uh, verse 3, he was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. I love that little detail. Isn't that a cute little detail? It seems quite a weird thing to put in, doesn't it? Um, that Zacchaeus, um, this rich great man. The picture of him that you get in the first couple of verses is nothing can stop this guy. He's the chief tax collector and he is rich. But when it actually comes to it, he's just this little guy. Do you see what the verse does? It kind of strips him back to money can't help him in this context. Do you see that? Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think that's what this verse is saying. Um, He was trying to see who Jesus was But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. In other words, when it comes to what really matters, to the kind of connections that really matter, his money is no help at all. He's just naked and left. And so he has to run ahead of the crowd. He kind of anticipates the path of Jesus, runs ahead of the crowd, and climbs up a sycamore tree. Um, Melissa and I went on a little kind of bus tour of Israel a couple of years ago. It was really fun. Um, one of the sites that we went to see was Jericho. It's not a very nice place, actually. Uh, I, I mean, it's beautiful. If any of you are from Jericho, lovely. Uh, really gorgeous place. Um, but um, there, there was a, there's this little garden there with a sycamore tree in it that claims to be... <laughs> the sycamore tree <laughs> that Zacchaeus um, hit up, which of course I totally believe, and that's fine if you, if you want to uh, think that. Um, so I prayed to it and uh, gave my life to it, uh, climbed it, and it didn't help me. Uh, anyway, so he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. So you can picture kind of the, uh, Zacchaeus's internal life is he's so alone, but he just wants a glimpse of Jesus. He doesn't really want to interact with Jesus. That's not on the cards for him. It says he wants to see who Jesus was. So what he's anticipating is, I've heard about this guy. Let me just get a glimpse and see if he's kind of all that from a distance. And so he climbs a little tree. And here's the amazing thing, is this next verse. Um, Because uh, it says, verse 5, when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Isn't that incredible? So, like, Jesus notices this guy. It's kind of one of the little ironies about the passage that Zacchaeus goes to see Jesus, but Jesus sees him. And, like, Jesus catches his eye. Jesus makes the first move and looks at him um, and then speaks to him and knows his name. Isn't that cool? I wonder if he, I mean, there's two ways he could have known his name. One is um, that Jesus um, 
<laughs> has a really great relationship with the Holy Spirit and just knew his name. That happens a lot for Jesus, and that's fine. That may well be it. But the other way is that as Jesus was coming up the road towards him, people might have been whispering at Jesus, Jesus, that guy up the tree, he's that Zacchaeus that's been oppressing us. Would you mind just knocking him off the tree? Like it would be really convenient if you could, <laughs> if you could do something to push that guy down a peg or two. That would be really great. Because that Zacchaeus, he's been driving us up the wall. Whatever the whispers would have been, they would not have been positive. Uh, that might be the case, or people might have just been ignoring Zacchaeus completely, which seems to be what's happening with the crowd. He can't li- <laughs> They're just like, no, can't come through. Um, so, don't know. That's just conjecture, but I don't know. Um, but anyway, Jesus looks at him and says his name, and says, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Um, now, what's going on there? Um, I hate it if anyone ever invites themselves over to my house. Um, I'm, I, I mean, I'd love to have you all over. <laughs> um, but you know when you want to have like a nice afternoon chill, and then someone's like, hey, we should, you know, let me come around. Or someone knocks on your door. Have you ever had it when someone knocks on your door and you weren't expecting it, and then you have to act really pleased to see them? Um, I'm just kidding, that never happens to me. I'm always really pleased to see people. But um, the important thing about this context is someone coming to your house is them saying, I know you and I love you and I respect you. And I want to publicly be seen as saying, you're the man, basically. Um, is I, I love this guy and I respect him and I want to be seen with him. So going to someone's house is a way of actually endorsing them as a person. Does that make sense? Um, So what Jesus is saying is, I'm willing to be seen under your roof. Now stop for a minute. When do you think the last time someone had said that to Zacchaeus was? I think it had been years, maybe decades, since someone had wanted to be seen under the roof of Zacchaeus' house. Because actually, up until that moment, No one wanted to associate with him because he was the traitor who took everyone's money. Fair play, right? Because who would want to spend time with that guy? So Jesus, what he's doing is saying, Zacchaeus, and notice, does he ask Zacchaeus to change? No. As chief tax collector, I want to be seen with you. Isn't that cool? And so Zacchaeus is obviously really honored because it's been years since anyone has shown him this kind of dignity, this kind of love, this kind of um, uh, grace, this kind of wholeness, this kind of relationship. And so he says, yes, 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 yes. Come to my house. So he comes, uh, Jesus comes to his house uh, for tea. Why did I say for tea? I think it's because it's in that little song, isn't it? Um, I can't remember how the song goes, but I I know that that Jesus comes for tea, Zacchaeus, because of course that's what everyone did in first century <laughs> Palestine. So, some tea? Yes, of course I'd like some tea. Do you have a scone? Um, no, joking. No one has scones. Scones. Um, okay. Come for some falafel or something. I don't know. Um, so he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Zacchaeus is obviously like, wow, this is a really, really incredible thing. Um, all who saw it, it says in verse 7, began to grumble and said, he has gone to, the get, to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Are they happy? 
No, they're not happy. He's not just a sinner like who did something wrong over there. He's the one who oppressed them, right? Most of the people saying this have been people who Zacchaeus has knocked on the house of and they have not been pleased to see him. And now Jesus is saying, hey, this is of all the people in this town. I'm just passing through. I'm not going to be here long. But of all the people in this town who I could hang out with, I'm going to hang out with the worst one of all of you. Um, And, uh, well, Jesus doesn't even say it like that. He just says, I want to come to your house, Zacchaeus. Um, uh, and here's the, here's the amazing thing about this story for me, is what happens next. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, and he shows him love, and he shows him grace, and he shows him wholeness. And then what does Zacchaeus do? He literally, his whole life turns around in one verse. Zacchaeus said, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood there and said to Jesus, Look, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And I like the next phrase, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, (laughs) (laughs) if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Now, listen, how did Zacchaeus make all of his money? (laughs) So what he's saying is I'm going to give away half plus four times everything I've ever earned. In other words, Zacchaeus is basically saying, I'm going to give away all my cash today. Basically, he's saying that. He's not just saying half plus a bit. He's saying half plus everything else. I'm going to to go around to all the people that I've wronged and give back four times what I took from them. In other words, Zacchaeus' whole mindset around money and around people, his whole dysfunctionality with money has been overturned in one act of grace by Jesus. Isn't that cool? And no longer does Zacchaeus see people as a means of getting money, but as money as a means of loving people. Does that make sense? And it's turned around. All his anxiety is turned around. All his, his um, focus on money is the thing that will give him his identity, the thing that will give him kudos, the thing that will make people look at him in the street. It's gone. And his whole life uh, is changed. And it's all Grace And so Jesus responds, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. Now I think uh, that the principle there of Jesus meets a guy with a dysfunctional relationship with money. Now not all of you oppress everyone in your path to try and get rich, okay? That's probably not most people in this room. Some of you it is, I know. But not everyone. But all of us have a dysfunctionality around money that I think is going to only get healed the same way. By meeting Jesus and experiencing his love. By finding security in him and not in it. Does that make sense? And if there's fear in money, guess who's going to dispel that fear? It's not having money. It's meeting Jesus. And if there's a love of money, guess what's going to take that away? It's not just trying to love money less. It's meeting Jesus. There's a really famous passage in the Bible that talks loads about money and giving. And it's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And it's where we're going to spend the rest of our time for three minutes. Um, Hey, I started a bit late, didn't I? I did. Yeah, let's give me lots of time. Um, We don't need to pray for each other. Um, So, uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and nine. So we're just going to just quickly preach on two chapters of the Bible. Um, 
This is a really famous passage where Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about giving. Now, just quickly, let's do a little context. There were, the church grew, right? It started in Judea with Jewish believers in Jesus. And then over time, it grew across the whole Roman world really quick. Um, and people who weren't Jewish started believing in Jesus all over Greece and Macedonia and the whole kind of uh, that part of the Roman world. Uh, people all over the place started believing in Jesus. And these churches popped up of people who weren't Jewish, who were Gentile Christians. Gentile just means other nations. So uh, anyone who wasn't Jewish became a Christian. Does that make sense? Not everyone who wasn't Jewish became a Christian, but you know what I mean. So there was all these churches. But then a couple of decades later, the churches in Judea who were made up of Jewish believers came under, there there was a massive famine that was kind of coupled with lots of other problems that the church was having. So that the believers who were Jewish in Judea, where the whole movement had started, became incredibly poor and were really hungry, basically. And they were in dire need. And one of the things that Paul does is he goes round the churches that he's planted in the rest of the kind of Roman world and says, hey guys, this is a really great opportunity for you to step up as believers. You've got a responsibility to love your brothers and they're starving. So would you give? Would you give? And he goes around the churches um, saying, would you give? Now, he's popped into Corinth at some point and they've said, hey Paul, we'd love to be a part of that, uh, that giving ministry thing that you're doing. And then the kind of the issue's gone a bit quiet and they've kind of forgotten about it. Has anyone ever promised to give and then kind of gently forgotten about it over time? Hallelujah. So uh, it's not good, but so what Paul's done is he's writing to remind them. He's saying, hey guys, I'm going to swing by in a few weeks. (laughs) Um, It would be really great if there was something there when I came. Does that make sense? Um, So he starts in chapter eight by talking about the church. Um, in, in Macedonia, the churches in Macedonia, who though they were extremely poor, um, these churches had virtually nothing, but they heard about their poor brothers and they were like, you know, what? I don't care if I have nothing, I'm going to give the nothing that I don't have to help these people to, to eat. Does that make sense? Um, and so Paul kind of starts with that example and he's like, hey guys, you've got a bit more than them, come on. Um, but here's the thing, these two chapters on giving, right, um, there's a surprising word that comes up loads and loads and loads of times. The word grace is mentioned 17 times in the whole of 2 Corinthians, and 10 of them are in these two chapters. Does that make sense? 17 times in the whole book. 10 times in these two chapters on giving, Paul talks about grace. Huh. It's almost like there's a tie-in between our relationship with money and our relationship with grace. Okay, so let's have a little look about a couple of verses. Verse 8. I do not say this as a command, but I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For, for, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. Isn't that interesting? Paul's whole argument on giving doesn't begin with, hey guys, here's a rule. If you're a Christian, you should give. And you should give this. We love rules, don't we? Um, So many times, like questions around finance in the church are like, how much should I give? Should I tithe? 
How regularly? To what? Should I tithe to the church? Should I tithe partly to the church and partly to other organizations? Should I tithe monthly? Should I tithe pre or post tax? Should I, do you know what I mean? And all these questions because we want rules, we want answers, we want clarity. Paul doesn't do any of that. What he says to the church is when you're thinking about giving, think about this. What does God's grace teach us? When you're thinking about giving, think about the Jesus who, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. In other words, the answer for our issues with money is focusing on grace. Is that too much of a stretch? I don't think that's too much of a stretch. I think that's what he's saying. And so he can't stop talking about grace. And his invitation to the church is quite simply this. You've received grace. Now I want you to participate in grace. To live a life transformed by grace. So that grace permeates every part. Do you like my slide now? So this is where it got really complex. This took me a long time. Um, yeah, more Lord. Um, to do, but uh, so that grace permeates every part of, of our lives. So you see, now listen, uh, we're having a gift day over the next two days, two Sundays, and that's being mentioned. Um, the reason why I'm talking like this is because um, there's not a, if you're a part of Forest Hill, you should give this much. Is there? No, not yet, Nigel says. <laughs> we'll see how we do and then we'll decide. Um, uh, there's, there's not like a rule, but what we, want for, what we want for us as a church isn't to be a people who say, now I give 10% to the church and so I'm done, or, so, or, or I give 5% to the church and so I'm done, or I give whatever, or I make it up on gift days so then I'm fine. What we want is for this to be an opportunity for us all to go and look at our banks and look at our money and look at the way we handle it and think, am I living in my financial life Genuinely out of a place of security in God, out of a place of security in the gospel of Jesus, out of I know that he loves me so I don't need to worry, out of I know that he's got my back so I don't need to worry, or am I living out of actually I'm trying to find some security here, I'm trying to find some meaning here. Now listen, that's not me saying that we shouldn't have any savings accounts, I don't think. Though it's hard to find savings accounts in the Bible. (laughs) But I don't think it's saying that. I think it's just saying, if your savings account is your life, you've got a real issue. Does that make sense? It's, It's good to be financially prudent. It's not good to be financially dependent on that money, on that number. Uh, Okay, this is where I could have really used my nose. Um... We need to finish, don't we, anyway? Sorry? Tim Neller. Let's go Tim Keller. Uh, Let's have... Oh, yeah, what did I put? Oh, good. So, okay, so if you don't believe me, here's a guy who's intelligent saying the same thing. Um, uh, What breaks the power of money over us is not just redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ. Rather, it's deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ. Now, um, Tim Keller is a a massive kind of intellectual thinker and speaker. I would qualify deepen your understanding with also deepen your experience of. It's not just about thinking more about Jesus, but knowing him, meeting him, and having him meet you. Does that make sense? 
but we'll, we'll take it anyway. But it's deepening your understanding, your experience of the salvation of Christ, what you have in him, and then living out the changes that that understanding makes in your heart. What we want is a bunch of people as a church. What we want as a church isn't just to be people who make the balance sheets work. It's to be people who are financially free and, and who are genuinely free. Who genuinely lit now um, that will mean slightly different things for every one of us for some of us, this gift day uh, or this time in the year is a really useful chance to think actually um, if god 's invited me into grace, am I participating in his work of grace through the church now that might mean uh, giving at Forest Hill it might mean giving to other Christian organizations or other organizations or relief or uh, environmental work or whatever. Um, But am I participating in the grace that God wants to pour out? So he invites us not just to be receivers of grace, but livers in grace. That's what Zacchaeus finds, isn't it? Um, he, He doesn't just become a receiver of Jesus' grace, but someone who then shares that freedom, shares that liberality with everyone around him. And that's what Paul's inviting the Corinthians into. And that's what we want to be as a church. This gift day is way more than about making the balance sheets meet, though that would be lovely for us as a church. It's about us being a people who are saying, what is God about? And am I piling in? Am I joining in? Am I joining in as his grace reaches people all over the place? Am I fully invested, fully involved in the work of his kingdom? Um, I hope that's not too strong or too weak. Was that about right? You get to interpret. The good thing is, it's not gift day today. So you can go away and think about this um, for the whole week. And think, for some of you, maybe it'll be like, actually, I haven't given to Forest Hill uh, this year. And I haven't, my giving actually to any organization, I don't want this all to be about Forest Hill. I'm really aware uh, that by talking about giving at Forest Hill, I'm also talking about where my salary comes from. And so I feel very awkward about that. Um, I'm just going to put that uh, out. Uh, and you know that that's a part of what's going on. But I'm not asking you to pay my salary, but you know what I mean. Do you make sense? Um, but I, there's a degree of which I feel awkward about this, but not very much, because, um, because, <laughs> uh, because I'm not saying just to Forest Hill, but um, there may be, for some of us, this is time uh, for a bit of, okay, maybe I've not been as invested as I can with my money, and so it's a chance to rectify that and to give regularly and to give one off, whatever. Uh, for some of us, that's not, that's not the call to action, uh, not for many of us, is it? Oh dear. Okay, Uh, but basically I'm saying I leave it to you. We're not going to set rules because Paul doesn't set any rules. What he does say is this. um, The one who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. In other words, if you want to invest in Jesus' work of grace, pour into it. Pour into the church. Pour into giving to the poor. Pour into giving to good causes um, and to the work of Jesus' kingdom. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, if you feel compelled to give, don't. That's fine. If you're giving because you feel guilty, if you don't, we don't want your money. Nigel does, actually, probably. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Because uh, like, that's not where we want this to come from. And for Zacchaeus, that's not where it comes from. Where it comes from is, uh, is this. God is able to provide you with every grace in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in the good work. That's what he wants for us, to be people who receive God's grace and then to live that out and to live out the freedom that brings in our financial lives.